Welcome back to the Shema Podcast, my friends, and part two of Extrapolating Our Torah with Rabbi Yacobian. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. The Almighty could have given us all these details in a very well-organized manual. It seems like what he tasked us with through this exercise of figuring out what is permitted, what is prohibitive. It's that exercise itself that he wanted us to struggle with. Absolutely. It's part of our service to him. Not in every law, but in many aspects of the law, if not in... In all of the what-ifs, yes. In all of the fundamentals, no. We have the fundamentals. But yes, the greatest sin, the greatest sin, the greatest sin, the greatest sin, and I say that over and over and over again to emphasize, okay. is ignorance. The Torah does not tolerate ignorance. You have to become a scholar. You must. The Talmud says, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, was a time of famine in Israel. Individual who was actually a scholar, but Rabbi Judah, Prince Rabbi Danasi, didn't know him, came to ask him for food. He was hungry. I didn't have what to eat. Rabbi Danasi says, No, I don't give my food to ignoramuses. Now, this was a fully observant individual, just he wasn't knowledgeable in Torah. All curse comes from ignorant Jews. And he said, But God gives the raven, and the raven, he just gives it in food, so he gave it to him. And then he said, Woe to me that I gave from my bread to an ignorant Jew. God doesn't want Jews. God wants people who are scholarly in Torah. Okay. You're saying it's Hashem's expectation that every Jew, that there's no rank and file average Jews, that just, that everyone has to be a massive Torah scholar. And isn't massive. I said a Torah scholar. Absolutely. Massive, no. Okay. Well, I thought that's why I find a, a rabbi so I can go to him for these questions. No. A rabbi teaches you should how to learn. And until you learn, I'll give you the answer. But you have to learn. And you remember in the process, one of the things that we ask everyone to do, yourself, your wife, and pretty much from anyone else that I'm sure you've asked, we want to see if you learn from the book yourself and ask the right questions. In fact, we don't always care about the answer to the question, but we want to see if you ask the right question. Because the right question shows that you learned. You need to become a scholar. I don't mean you. Every Jew must become scholarly in Torah. Every Jew. This, you could see this in, in Maimonides, in, in the laws of learning Torah. So one of the laws, 613 commandments, is the commandment to be involved in the study of Torah. And it goes about how to learn, what to learn. And there's an expectation. After 120 years, they ask you, first question, did you learn the written word? In other words, the 24 books of the Bible, the Tanakh. If he says no... The Talmud says what happens to him. If he says, yes, that's good. Did you learn the Mishnah, which is the fa- foundation of the oral Torah? If he says no, the Talmud goes into what happens then. If he says yes, say good. Did you start understanding the Mishnah? I asking why and how and how does it apply? Not was getting into the Kishkas, which is the Talmud, the Gemara. If he says no, then the Talmud says what happens then. If he says yes, that's very good. Did you learn Maseh Bereshit? how the world was created. I was getting into the mystical aspect. Did you start getting into the reverence of understanding how God, from the spiritual essence of his light, 
for lack of a better term, came into, came into this physical, limited essence, which is a manifestation of the spiritual, and so on and so forth. But there is an expectation for a person to actually systemize and become scholarly. And yes, that's why the Talmud is written the way it's written. In fact, when Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote the Code of Jewish Law, and he came up with a formula of taking the opinion of Maimonides, the Rif, which is three generations before him, and the Rosh, which is about two generations, three generations after him, and taking those three and deciding majority rules, and that's the way he kind of put together the Code of Jewish Law, there was major, major, major dispute on that novel idea that it came about. And many said, the Torah is meant for people to learn and become scholarly. Don't give them a cheap, quick way out of it by just reading the code of Jewish law and thinking that they understand what the law is. They have to learn the Talmud and the opinions of the early authorities, which were masters of the Talmud, and then come about to what the decision is. And that is what we are all, all the time trying to do. Now, that is all in the what-ifs. It's all in the what-ifs. I can give you a lot of examples. L- l- let, me, let me go back to trying to structure things just for our listeners. Like, there's so much. No, there isn't. To learn. Nope. No, there isn't. Even, like, you know, I have a very structured study schedule that sandwiches my making a living. I'm probably in the norm, probably the majority. Maybe if you were born into it, but many of us... Begin our learning later. I mean, like Rabbi Akiva. Uh, oh, yes, who who became a master? He became a master because he separated from his wife and sat in a yeshiva nonstop. That's not why he became the master. <laughs> but you're right. And he was so holy that Hashem just brought treasures to him, so he never no, had to work. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, no, it's not that much. It actually isn't that much. Okay. The Ramchal says the rule of learning: go for the general guidelines. The details are only there to explain general guidelines. Try to understand the klalim, the general rules, and the pratim and the details will fall into place. And if something doesn't, then there must be another guideline, another general rule that you maybe missed out on. We know most rabbis don't know everything, but we know the general rules. And once you know the general rules, you have the tools with which to work and yes, the rest of your life becomes a learning experience. But you go with the general rules. And the general rules are not ones that cannot be learned. Everyone can learn them. Okay, so there, there's a, like a decision architecture that once you learn that, then the application of that in all these different unique situations, exactly. you'll, be able to, you'll be able to figure that out. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that's what Maimonides does. Maimonides in his book, Explaining the Whole Torah, in the first chapter of every, every of his topics gives you the general guidelines, and then goes into the details. If you just learn those general guidelines, a lot of those details will automatically fall in place. And sometimes the details are just there just to sharpen your understanding of the general rule. It's really not that complicated. It takes time, and it takes practice, and it takes learning from someone who already did this, just like you do in pretty much many any important area of learning and doctors do this lawyers do this you have to learn and then you try to practice to see if you really understood what it is that you learned in Hebrew it's called shimush serving the scholar you serve the scholar and by looking at how he behaves say oh I get it this is because of this and if you see something off say well why'd you do this 
Or why did you do that? Or why is it different here? And then you'll pick up on things. Well, oh, oh, like we always do pretty much in any field. Okay. Should we go back to the basics? Yes, please. Okay. The biblical laws are relatively, like I said, 90% clear what the biblical laws are. If they're written and they're clear when they're written, we get it. In the rabbinical realm, there's two parts, very important to distinguish. Majority of the sages' job is not, God forbid, to interpret anything. Their job is to pass down the interpretation that was given from God to the Jewish nation, the original generation, through Moses. For example, when it says, you shall write these words on your doorposts. Literally, it means take the whole Torah and write it on every one of your doorposts. Because mezuzot means the doorposts. We have been given, passed down from God to Moshe, to us, that that meant writing the first two paragraphs of the Shema, no dispute there, the first two paragraphs of Shema, and putting it on the right side of the person entering the room. Now, sometimes here I'll give an example where we have a question. What happens if the room is like a kitchen which has the back entrance and the front entrance? Which one's the right side? The left side is the right and the right side is the, the, the right. Right. So sometimes you'll have these questions. And that it creates sometimes two opinions. Both could be right. We don't know. And you'll have one rabbi saying one thing, another rabbi saying another, and you'll hear the logic of both, and you'll actually agree with both. It could be. I was told that the, the kitchen is the center of the house, so any pathway it leaves towards the kitchen is the right. But you're saying there's more than one opinion on this? Of course. I'll give you an opinion. You'll, you'll understand it. You'll actually agree with it. Isn't the kitchen a room that just serves the other rooms? Yes. So it's a room that you're taking out of instead of a room that you go into. It makes perfect sense. And that's an opinion of some. Some tell you, if there's doors, follow the hinges. Is it going in or is it going out? There is, and not necessarily that all these little what-ifs or details were hammered out and passed down. Because if that was the case, you know how big the Code of Jewish Law needed to be? <laughs> Much bigger than we have today. Right. So we didn't write down every tiny detail. Today they do. Today the oral Torah, which is supposed to be oral, was written, but the oral Torah is just passing down of the simple explanation of what God's word was supposed to mean, regardless of what it says. We don't care. Very important for our listeners to know. We don't care what the Torah says. We care what the Torah meant to say. If the Torah writes something and reading it the way it's written makes sense in one way, but our tradition is that it was supposed to be understood in a completely different way, we don't care about what it actually says. We care about what it means. Now, one who really knows biblical Hebrew well will also see that what you read, if you understand biblical Hebrew, and books like Malbim or of Hirsch or the Ketav and the Kabbalah, these are all books that show how even, even what looks like it doesn't make sense, it actually is the simplest explanation. But putting that aside, we don't care if the, teach, if the shorthand, the only person who has the right to explain the shorthand is the author of the shorthand. And even though in shorthand, if you just read face value, it means A, B, C. If the person who wrote it tells you, I mean X, Y, Z, then you go with X, Y, Z. Because he's the authority as to what it was meant. The first job of the sages is just to pass down what was passed down to us from God to Moses as to what God meant when he told Moses to write down whatever it was that he wrote down. Okay. Okay. Second job is to create the boundaries that you're talking about. It's called takanot ve'gizerot. 
enactments and decrees to create types of boundaries, like the laws of Muktzeh. So that's a rabbinical boundary, but we're very particular that this is a rabbinical law. And therefore, in certain cases, we'll be lenient, depending on what the case is. So that's another area of, and their uh, chicken and, and milk comes into play. Okay. And they left it somewhat vague as to the separation. When I grew up in Iran, our tradition was for chicken and milk, three hours, for meat and milk, six hours. Rabbi Ovadi Yosef is of the opinion that today everyone should follow six hours. So were many others. He wasn't the only one. We still haven't explained where Rabbi Ovadi Yosef's authority comes from, but he is one of the greatest halachic scholars. Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach, Rav Moshe Feinstein. You won't find pretty much any of them today saying that it's okay in the countries in which we live, and in particular about all these additional words that I'm saying, to follow a three-hour rule or a one-hour rule. But you'll find, for example, in the Breuer's community, which is the German of Hirsch's community, you'll find different customs in their community as they continued on from Germany, which had a different custom as to the separation of chicken and milk, or sometimes even meat and milk. This was their accepted practice, one which is in the boundaries of the Code of Jewish Law. And that's okay. Okay. But this is a rabbinical decree from the Sanhedrin, from the Supreme Court. One of my questions I poised in the intro was, why don't we all just come together, all the great sages today, and say, you know, like on this question at hand, how long to wait after a meat meal to have milk? Why don't we all just come to one term and have the same halakha? Excellent question. And the rule is one that is very, very understandable. The only way to take away a accepted practice, a law or a practice, you have to have a body of scholars which is equal in numbers and in wisdom to the one who preceded it. We don't have that anymore. And we're not arrogant to think that we know better than the scholars of old. Okay. Now, are there things that today, because of all the new realities, you'll find scholars that will try to work with the new realities? Yes, absolutely. But you really need to be a very have broad shoulders to be able to do that. See, if, uh, technically, technically, can we argue with the scholars of the Talmud? Technically, yeah. But some who would do so, we'd most probably ask him to leave our communities. Technically, can you argue with the scholars of the time of Maimonides? Yeah. But it would really show of how much a fool this individual is. Right. The, the one thing I quickly learned from Talmud was that those sages were like off the charts. Off the charts. And not just the Talmud. I mean, you want to get to the Talmud. We, we, uh, and we who, who are Talmudical uh, learners, I wouldn't say scholars, we who are into learning Talmud, we understand, I remember many times learning with the Rav, my Rav, we understand how much our logic is flawed after being shown over and over again because of our, our generation's lack of patience, lack of serenity, lack of proper imagination, our inability to really think. And then our teacher's generation tell us that they feel the same way towards two generations before that. You will rarely find someone just simply arguing in our generation with the Hafez Chaim and the Mishnah Baruch, which is right pre, pre-World pre War II. Right. Or with Rav Chaim Ozer Grudensky. 
or with, with Reb Chaim of Brisk, or with the Ben Ishchai, we, we understand enough to understand how great they were. And they say the same things about the generations of Rabbi Yosef Cairo, which was 500 years ago. Who's going to argue on the Ari? And Rabbi Yosef Cairo, after they wrote something in the Court of Jewish Law, and the Court of Jewish Law was pretty much, pretty much is the right word to use, accepted by all Israel. There are many areas which not, but they discussed it in the printed books of the Court of Jewish Law. There are all the commentators which discuss the words of Rabbi Yosef Cairo and the Rabbi Moshe Israelish. Something which the Jewish nation has accepted as law carries with it the weight of law, even though technically it was not Supreme Court who put it into practice. Who's going to come and say, with arrogance and with a very, very limited level of understanding, as a word that is just not proper to use, but who's going to come and say that they think that they understand better than Rabbi Sakaira who said six hours, or the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelish, or in any given area of, of halacha? And many halachic authorities, many are of the opinion that once a Jewish, the Court of Jewish Law was written and accepted, that equals the stature of the Supreme Court because all Israel accepted it. It is like the Supreme Court, the, the Sanhedrin, put it into practice. Rabbi Yonatan Eifshitz was of, of that opinion. And for sure, the, the sages of Tzafat, of the time of Rabbi Yosef Cairo, who were the greatest sages in the world at the time, and they were all gathered together pretty much in Tzafat, they all accepted what Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote in the Court of Jewish Law as law. Not everything. And generations afterwards, there were many, like the, the Gaon deals with the words of the Court of Jewish Law. But everyone agrees that you have to have one of the early authorities agreeing with your opinion, and you better be able to prove yourself and answer all the questions of the other opinions as to why that opinion was wrong. Now, when you get to that level, every rabbi in the world will give you all the authority to say what law is. But for some guy who's chewing bubble gum in the back of the bus who learned a couple of things here and there, and come and even want to say that I think, the moment he says, I think, we shudder. Because his thinking causes us to get scared. We'd prefer he wouldn't think. <laughs> okay. So there's this general idea, too, that the further we get away from Mount Sinai, there's just a natural dimming Decline. that Hashem cause to happen sure. in the world of his wisdom. The reverence of God has gone away. The reverence of King David. Correct. So so even the greatest of the greatest of our generation, that's why they, they know they're, they're still limited to the... And they limit themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So so part of this equation is, is that, that we know that the decisions made prior, we, we know where they came from, and, that, and that's why we accept them. Yeah, but technically, can you technically buy the book argue with something that the scholars of old have said? Yeah. You better have very good backing for it. But yes, technically you could. You want to go argue with the Mishnah? No, that's impossible because that's passed down. But you want to argue with the, some of the rulings of the Talmud, how they came about to their ruling? Okay. But let's see how you, <laughs> how you find yourself. Like you said, the humility aspect. Humility actually stems from knowledge. The more you learn, the more you understand both how small you are, how, how much you don't know, and how much those who said what they said, they actually did know. You suddenly understand that you really don't understand. And what you did understand, most probably, is very limited. And we know that. Right. Like, uh, the sages today know that. You'll see the way they speak about the sages of old. 
even pre-World War II, different era, different, different holiness, different spirituality, different connection, different reverence, different they saw holiness. We see Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> Let me just summarize. Okay. Biblical laws, almost no dispute. Rabbinical decrees, almost no dispute. Rabbinical uh, ac- accepted rulings that are compared to, which is what in in regular American judicial system, they also there's a, a precedent was set, and therefore this compared to that case, or is it compared to not? That comes about comes about all the time, and that's most of disputes. Most of the arguments and the and the and the discussions are about those, but those are realities of life. Things that come up all the time. So those, yes, there's a lot of discussion about those. The other things, not much. There is discussion about them, but it's usually what ifs. Okay. I mean, I have found since I first starting to keep Shabbish and kosher. I had the torch rabbis in my speed dial. Because I assume I'd call whoever I would get, they would have the same opinion. Once I've gotten here, and a lot more things have come up, and I said Rabbi Zinga is my rabbi, but if he didn't pick up right away, I would just call another rabbi if I need a quick answer, only to find out that the positions would have been different. Yeah. And I realized I, to only call Rabbi Lezinga. Yeah, so not to get confused, uh, says the Pirkei Avot. Pirkei Avot says, Ase lecha rav. Make for yourself one Rav. Pirkei Avot says it. It's from the Tanaim, from, from 2,000 years ago. We already have this. Ase lecha rav. Make for yourself one opinion. Uh, at the beginning, until you become a scholar. And when you become a scholar, and you become the Rav, so you learn the sugya, you learn the topic, you come to your own conclusions. We, we hope you do. We expect that you do. Okay, and that's what this question really, I guess, comes down to, is that you do have some, there's definitely, I've seen some differences in opinion on some matters that I've, I've asked. Give me an example. I wanted to find out after Ellie Sheva had her conversion, mm-hmm. do we need to re-kosher the kitchen? I couldn't get a hold of Rabbi Lazinga, but I called Rabbi Winder. And I guess there were some variables involved because... Our daughter still has not gone through a conversion. So he asked his rabbi, and he said, no, it was not necessary. It would be good to do, but it was not necessary. So I said, we plan on doing it after Elsie has her conversion. When Rabbi Zinga called me back, he said, well, that's, that's the position you need to follow then. Although I could tell from what he said that, that he would have told me differently. But that, again, goes into a what-if scenario. The rule is simple. You do not trust a non-Jew when they say something is kosher. Simple rule. Someone who's not part of the system cannot testify in an American court. You're not an American citizen or resident. You can't testify. We can't trust you to the system if you're not part of the system and, and you are not an a upstanding member of that specific society. That makes sense. Okay. But once you became part of the society, are you retroactively believed on everything else? That is a very good question. Does he remember everything? Can he be trusted now for what he was before? Does he have the rule of what he was before because you're really a new person? So was that a different person? There's some very good questions in here. Taking dishes to the mikveh. One who converts, do they need to take dishes to the mikveh? So we know that a goy doesn't need to take dishes to the mikveh. But a Jew does. But when I bought them, I was not a Jew. And now I am a Jew. So they need to go to the mikveh. And maybe when I went to the mikveh, being that the dishes are my property, it is as though they went to the mikveh too. 
That is a very good question. These are what if questions. Right. The, the, but the fundamental law is simple. Non-Jews don't need to take the dishes of the mikveh. Jews do. A non-Jew that becomes a Jew. Very good question. Excellent question. That's a what if. Everything we're talking about now, you find it from Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Going back to the second temple times. Beit Hillel says, this person is a mamzer, is illegitimate. Beit Shammai says, this person is not a mamzer. So Beit Shammai will marry them, Beit Hillel won't. And they didn't refrain from marrying each other's families. They would just tell the other, according to your opinion, this child and mamzer should just be careful. Because the Sanhedrin never ruled on it. And when the ruling came out and said, law is like Beit Hillel, and Beit Shammai is still right. That was the ruling. Both are the words of the living God. Both are true. Follow Beit Hillel. Which doesn't mean that there is absolute truth. But this is the way to follow. So can, can you summarize why... I, I guess we, I want to make sure we have a clear understanding on why it is that we have that one rabbi. You know, when we have those halakhic questions, if we you know, are speed dialing through a bunch of different rabbis till we get the person on the phone and they answer this way, but another rabbi would have answered another way, why... Do we need to have one rabbi? I want to be clear, like, why do we need to have one rabbi to get all our halakhic questions answered from? A couple of reasons. Reason number one, and the reason number one to have one rabbi is that you don't get confused and get different rulings. Reason number two, because that one rabbi gets to know you. And like I said, it's not only to answer the question, but it's to answer the person. Okay. That makes sense. Not the only reason, though. Reason number three, that one rabbi will follow a certain tradition that he got from his rabbi. And therefore, you are following a proper tradition in Jewish law. You're following one of the early authorities which felt in a specific area of Jewish law that this is the right way to go about. So you're following a legitimate opinion. And to say, I'm following this opinion, then that opinion, well, that doesn't make any sense. According to your tradition, what is what Hashem wants of you? Well, I don't know, but I follow this rabbi, and that's his tradition. Okay, okay, that that makes sense. One one follow up practical question that came up: I chose my rabbi, Rabbi Zinga. Elisheva chose you as her rabbi. Okay, there may be different halakhic opinions on matters. Mm-hmm. As a household, if she were to call and ask you a question. I were to call Rabbi Lazina a question, and maybe those were different. What do we do in such a situation? So the truth is, when you say and your wife says, I choose a rabbi, the two of you meant two different things. Okay. And therefore, there's no contradiction. When it comes to Jewish law, the two of you follow Rabbi Lazenga. What your wife was saying that I choose Rabbi Yacobin as, as my rabbi, most probably what she meant is, when I want to discuss guidelines in life, and how to go about, and what to do, and what decisions to make, I consult with Rabbi Yacobian because his style may jive with me better. That's more what most probably she meant. Okay, that's yes. fine. When it comes to following Jewish law, you follow Rabbi Lazenga. And in general, we follow whatever it is that the husband's, the man's customs and practices are. Ashkenazi and Sephardic. Husband is Ashkenazi, wife is Sephardi. And they get married. The household is Ashkenazi. Okay. Judaism follows the woman. Everything else inside of Judaism follows a man. Beautiful. That was that. I, I said. I think I know the answer. I said that at the dinner table that night, and I like it when every now and then I got it right. Rabbi, anything else you would like to add on this subject to bring? Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, there's a lot more to this discussion than what we said. Yeah. And there's a lot of exceptions to 
many of the things. One hour doesn't do justice to this topic. And again, the most important thing is that reverence and respect for God's word and what it is that he meant. And if a person truly, honestly, is not looking just not to have to be penalized by God and go to purgatory, but they're looking to serve God out of their reverence and love that stems from reverence, Hashem will always help them find the right path for themselves in whatever time it is and make the right decisions in Jewish law and Jewish life. For those that begrudgingly understand that there most probably is a truth here, but I wish it wasn't, and I'll try to find every loophole out of every scenario, Hashem will help them find those exits off the freeway (laughs) and make them feel that they're still on some form of fast track. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I appreciate you coming on once again. Pleasure and honor is mine. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.